You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. The podcast that looks at the greater canon of Western literature and lowers its expectations. I'm Megan. Um, Jules Verne? No, that bit was last episode. Also, for any first-time listeners, that's meaningless. I'm RJ. You know what? That's also meaningless for first-time listeners. But yeah, you're RJ. Okay. (laughs) And if you weren't before, you are now. That's probably if the mic's picking it up. I'm Jack Human. <laughs> Your Hugh Jackman presents Jack Human. The inverse of Hugh Jackman. Yes, the anti-Hugh Jackman. My claws go inside. Wait, you t- technically so do Hugh Jackman in this assumption you're making where it's not Wolverine, but Hugh Jackman who has the claws. So, he's a method actor. <laughs> what does that mean? He got them implanted. Uh, this is a show about literature, usually. Wolverine's literature. Yeah. It's comics. Wolverine Wolverine is comics, which is text, which is kind of what this episode is about. Haven't had an episode about comics yet, huh? No, not really. Shame on you. Yeah, well. Shame on me. Shame on us. This episode is, is kind of a bit of a sideways one. It's kind of a bit of a study break episode because things have gone a bit sideways here at Onola class. We have to mourn the loss. Of... One of the cats. Oh my god, don't put that in the universe. Jesus. Now we're going to put up a poll. Guess which one? No, my god. It's fucked up. (laughs) No. No, the cats are fine. Oh, I thought it was private. He's sitting in your lap right now. So he is. (laughs) No, nothing like that. This is is the crazy timeline thing. I don't know. Look, we've been watching Dark. We had to take some time (laughs) to break it apart. You know, create some storyboards. We've lost an entire wall. We had to make the family fuck Trapezoid. Watch Dark. It's a real good show. <laughs> no, just their schedules. It's bad. Bad happens. Episode got fucked. Shortened episode. Instead of our usual episode, we are starting what may well turn out to be a series. A sort of study break series, if you will. Look, I'm really pushing for a football episode, and may- that's why Megan uh, vetoed this one, I feel. No, we're, you're going to get your fucking football. Your, your football! Fu- yes, you're going to get your football episode. It just didn't happen when we thought it was going to. Uh, it's Might our- we have special guest host John Madden? Is he Is he dead? No, John Madden's very much alive. How did I think John Madden was dead? I don't know. He's old, he's retired, but he's not dead. <laughs> oh. So instead of our usual episode, while we work on that football episode, and if you're wondering how on earth we're going to do a literature episode about football, you'll see. In this mini episode, we'll be taking a look at a term that has a habit of wiggling its way into our other episodes, but that we don't often get the chance to explain very in-depth before getting distracted by memes about Pitbull or whichever author could get it. Can Walter get it? Well, we're, we're, I don't know. I need to look at a picture again. Could Walter get it? Maybe. 
Probably not. Depends on the woman. Depends. Depends on what she's into. We're going to talk about a literary theorist who, who will see if we, if we could get it. Uh, well, no Michelle. People are not, they have no context for what we're saying Smoldering right Michelle, as I call it. Uh, see, this is the problem. We get distracted by whether or not the people we're talking about are hot. You know, there's no uh, Walter Benjamin finger puppet. Well, clearly he hasn't made it. There's a Michelle Foucault finger puppet. God, if this is people's first episode, oh no. Oh no, Lit Class. Uh, and that thing that we, we talk about every now and then before we get distracted by shit like this is literary theory. Namely, what the fuck is literary theory? Oh, it's like if I'm a carnivore, when I read Animal Farm, all I take away is it's a very succulent tale. It's very delicious. Sort of? Yeah. <laughs> All animals are equal in my tummy. Oh, God. Hey, Megan. What? Yeah, RJ. Animal Farm. Yeah. What's your Power 5 ranking uh-huh. of the animals on Animal Farm insofar that you would eat them? Can you name me a character from Animal Farm? Like, the right, pig. Like, right, the pig. You, you got a name? Caesar. <laughs> Winston. Winston was a character in 1984, you jackass. Big brother. Okay. I'd eat Big Brother. So, Wrap my lips right around. I, Big you, Brother. So why do we do literary theory? What is literary theory? Part of this problem is, what is even literature? What is even text? As we were saying a second ago, you know, comic books is text. Lots of things is text. Lots of things lots is of, Lots text. of things is text. And we've argued on here, movies is text. Cat, cat is text. <laughs> he disagrees. All, all kinds of things is text. Then we gotta go one step deeper and be like, what is true in the text? That's where theory comes in, because if something is a theory, then we don't really have to prove it, right? Ah, huh? That's how philosophy works, right? I suppose. Aha! I, I hate, I hate this. A great example of why literary theory is a, a great big ball of what is true, really, is that if you go to its Wikipedia page, quite literally every other sentence says, citation needed. And I think that's beautiful. <laughs> it's just a way to understand a text. It's a way to take it apart. It gives you the tools to do, approach a text in different ways. And sometimes those ways make the text even more confusing and make you understand it less. It's kind of like a car. Just pick your favorite brand <laughs> and ride it. Feminism's a popular one. And then when people got bored of that, they created five more waves of it. Well, it's like how you get the different... You could get the feminism CRV. You get feminism with a spoiler. Oh, see, I was thinking full-fat feminism, calorie-free feminism, well, or ice milk well, feminism. Then you're, then you're mixing your metaphors. You were talking about cars. <laughs> now I'm talking about ice cream. Let's go back to the animals, though. <laughs> See, the pig, barbecue it. Horse, you generally want to avoid that. Well, you do whatever Taco Bell does. It seems to be working out for them. <laughs> what other animals are on that farm? I'm pretty sure there's ducks. That's easy. You roast that. Have you ever read Animal Farm? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Seen the movie, too. I never saw the movie. There's chickens. Man, chickens you could do anything to. Well, yes, clearly. Yeah, except fuck them. See, I was just about to completely undermine that by going, there must be some way to fuck them. <laughs> Yeah, that's why they tell you, keep fucking that chicken. Yes, someday you'll get there. So, consider this a crash course in the most litest of theories. Oh, I thought this was a crash course in toxic masculinity, but you know. That too. 
It's not going to be very good. It's not going to be very granular. But it is going to be by the internet's premier podcast experts on literature-based ding-dong humor. So there's that. That's another theory I take. Always look for the dicks. Always look for the dicks. That's actually going to be one. That's one of the ones on here. Phallic theory? Essentially. Nice. (laughs) And then we'll talk about a literary theorist that we've mentioned on the show before, specifically in our episode on Treasure Island. And then when we venture down this horrible, horrible rabbit hole again, we'll talk about another one. So this is like our our own lit class. Let's get lit series. Yeah. Is Bigfoot an animal farm? Yes. Yes, he is. Now, how would you eat Bigfoot? Raw. <laughs> what do you think Jack's, uh, makes, Jack's that, the one jerky is? That makes like you would suck his dick. No, that's Big Brother. Oh, yeah, it's the same, Meg. The bigger the feet. The bigger the brother? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, as you said, literary theory is a way that you can look at text and be like, what are we to make of this shit? And oftentimes it's like, well, we could make it worse. <laughs> No, you work within the structure. Because literature on its own has not necessarily. You have no That's way of discussing it. at all. But, but a lot of times it can make you look at it differently or maybe make more of it than you could on its own. But sometimes it can make it even more even more confusing. Um, it just depends. And so what, what I'm going to go through real quick before we get to our, our literary theorist of note for this episode, just a few of some of the most commonly identified schools of literary theory, along with some of their most uh, major authors and philosophers and such, or literary critics, several of which may sound familiar to you because we've mentioned them before, or I've yelled about them. So the first is like a, a form of romanticism, which was literary critics who have tried to sort of understand or identify aesthetic values and, and stress sort of like a, an art for art's sake. And this was like way back if we went to Oscar Wilde and this asshole named Walter Pater, who I haven't mentioned, who was just, I had to learn because he was in romanticism and I had to learn my, my British English lit. And this was kind of mushed with American pragmatism, which was headed up by Harold Bloom, who I've mentioned on the show before, who I had to learn in my undergrad, and I hate it, and I didn't realize it died in October of last year, which I was sad to learn about, because it means I won't ever fulfill my dream of meeting him and popping him in the jaw. So, so pragmatism... You can see on his grave. I can. So pragmatism was this idea that um, his his position specifically was, quote, politics had no place in literary criticism, that a feminist or Marxist reading of Hamlet would tell us something about feminism and Marxism, but probably nothing about Hamlet itself, which is reductionist as fuck. Like, I know I'm complaining about literary theory and everything, but like, wow, what a cold-ass take. Yeah, you know who's also uh, listed as a, a pragmatist? Your buddy, Stanley, Stanley Fish. Fish. Yeah, my buddy. <laughs> this is for you, Stan. Your Fish. asshole who would, uh, what was it, that he would leave a shopping cart outside the uh, his apartment building? Yeah, to... stick it to the libs. Nah, you just stick it to the other rich people. Yeah, just, just being a dick in general. I don't oh. think he was, he was just sticking it to whoever happened to be nearby. Then he would have press over at like 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning to make noise to wake up his neighbors just because. <laughs> He's just a dick. I think he just wanted to be a dick about literature. Cognitive literary theory, 
which applies research in cognitive neuroscience and cognitive evolutionary psychology and philosophy of the mind to the study of literature. So that's just getting all up in the brain and applying that to characters in literature, I guess. Uh, the only name I recognized on that was Mary Thomas Crane. I'm like, I don't know any of these other people. Cambridge criticism, which is literally just close reading in relation to social issues. Critical race theory, which is what it sounds like, applying criticism to race theory. Darwinian literary studies, which situates literature in the context of evolution and natural selection. That sounds terrible. Two books enter, one <laughs> book lives to tell the tale. Yeah, I did not go too deep into that, but that seems probably really racist and outmoded. <laughs> Moby Dick would win a lot of the fights. <laughs> It's a big whale. Yeah, it's a big, big whale. It could probably beat most of the animals on Animal Farm, <laughs> except Big Brother. Uh, one of your faves, deconstruction. Yeah. Strategy of close reading that elicits the ways that key terms and concepts may be paradoxical or self-undermining, rendering their meaning undeniable. So the big boy in there was, of course, Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher. If any of these are going to be that the meaning of this has no meaning, you could bet the person behind it is going to be a French philosopher. Derrida was your favorite. Yeah. What a cool boy. The cool, the cool boy who was like, if I'm nude in front of my cat, does my cat understand I'm nude? That's the one thing out of all the Derrida that I have read. The animal, I think it's called the animal that therefore I am. That's the only thing I took away was him being like, if I'm naked in front of my cat, is he into it? I wonder the same thing. It's natural <laughs> to wonder this. He has another essay where he wonders if his like four-year-old daughter is smarter than him. Even though he like, he's teaching at whatever university at that point, because she asked the real questions, like, why? <laughs> Fair. Uh, Spivak is apparently a deconstructionist also. There you go. She's under, You're going to see a lot Woman. of competing ones. In there. Yeah, oof. Feminist literary criticism. Sounds like what it is, reading through literature under a feminist lens. Eco-criticism, exploring cultural connections and human relationships to the natural world. Andy Furman. <laughs> and a reference for no one, but that's for you, Dr. Furman. <laughs> uh, Can which... Andy Furman get it? No. Come on. He's all, I guess he's all right. I don't know. God, didn't you see the picture he had on his new book? No, I didn't. Oh. oh. I've oh. seen him exercising at the gym in his little short runner shorts. Yeah, like mine. Yeah, actually, <laughs> pretty much exactly like them. Ugh. The only thing worse than seeing your professor at the gym is being the professor at the gym. Been on both sides of that shit. Okay, um, what was it? Gender, parentheses, see feminist literary criticism. Wait, for there we have Judith Butler and Elaine Showalter. Michelle Foucault. They didn't group him there under the big names, uh-huh. under, under gender. He's like everywhere else. Uh, formalism, which I think we mentioned on an episode. Don't remember which one. And, and that is just literally interpreting the the inherent features of the text, like the specific form, not only the grammar and the syntax, but also the literary devices such as meter and, and ignores the, the historical, biographical, cultural context. We don't care about that. We want to know about the commas. All of them are German. Marxism. We interpret it through a communist lens. <laughs> Everything has a nice shade of pink. Yes. And so that's... we have Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama, <laughs> Michelle Obama, Joe Biden. 
and uh, who, our boy, who we will be exploring, Walter Benjamin. And the Marx Brothers. Yeah, and the Marx Brothers. Groucho. Yes. Carl. <laughs> and Marky. Marky Marx. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Now you got to do that image. Yeah, Marky Marx. Yeah, Groucho, Carl, and, and Marky. You're welcome. This funky bunch. I hate you. New Criticism, which looks at literary works on the basis of what is written, not at the goals of the author or biographical issues. So that's death of the author and death death of literally anything else surrounding the author. Death of everything but the book. Um, I know we talked about that in our T.S. Eliot episode because T.S. Eliot was, when he was working as a literary critic, that was his whole big thing. was, don't talk about the author. We're only going to talk about the book. We're not going to talk about anything about the book. It's not because I'm a weird, racist, anti-Semite or anything like that, and I don't want you thinking about that. <laughs> uh, new historicism, which is, uh, well, well, I don't know if the author's dead, but history is alive. Um, the big guy in that is Stephen Greenblatt, which I remember because he is a, a big Shakespeare dude, and I had to read a lot of his shit during my Shakespeare time. And then uh, post-colonialism, which is, we have to talk about how racist it is, guys. <laughs> When we read Kipling, we have to acknowledge that he's racist, guys. And a big uh, post-colonial literary theorist is Edward Said. He wrote Orientalism. Yes. Which people misread and misunderstand a lot. Uh, Then we get to postmodernism. And that's when everything gets confusing and scary. That is criticism of the conditions present in the 20th century, often with concern for those viewed as social deviants or the other. And this is when your boy, your your big bald boy, your friend and mine, Michel Foucault, shows up. Yeah. Our our favorite French philosopher, as well as uh, Judith Butler again and Roland Barthes, a a fun Frenchman. That has a lot to do with power dynamics. The kinky shit. Yeah, the kinky shit. Uh, Roland Barthes is actually writer of the 1967th essay, The Death of the Author. So whenever you hear Death of the Author, you should be thinking about this dude named Roland Barthes, who actually wrote a cool, I think it was a book, right? There was a series of essays called Mythologies, or was it just an essay called Mythologies? It was a book. He talks about wrestlers and how they represent Grecian heroes. And Death of the Author, of course, is the sequel to Death of a Salesman. Yes. In this case, the piano's falling on the author. Because that's how the salesman dies, right? Piano falls on him. I thought he committed suicide. Nope, piano falls on him. I've never read Death of a Salesman. This is how I assume the salesman dies. No one tell me otherwise. He's like Willie Womax, right? Ain't he just a depressed dude? Yeah, the piano falls on him. Oh, all right. Just take me at my word. Don't do any of your own research. Okay. (laughs) Then post-structuralism. So it's a term for various theoretical approaches, like deconstruction, that criticize or go beyond structuralism's aspirations to create a rational science of culture by extrapolating the model of linguistics to other discursive or aesthetic formations. No, I don't know what that means. My favorite application of this kind of critical theory is to food. I will have deconstructed everything. <laughs> deconstructed peanut butter and jelly. No, see, we did deconstructionism with Derrida. This is post-structuralism. I don't know what it means. It means they just give you the plate. <laughs> they say, fuck you. <laughs> they, gi- they give you, like, the empty dust jacket for a book, and then they just flip you the bird. That's post-structuralism. I have a master's degree. I don't know what some of this shit is. I don't have a goddamn PhD. 
Then there's psychoanalysis. This is the penis thing, the phallic theory. Uh, it explores the role of consciousness and the unconscious in literature, including that of the author, reader, and characters in the text. So this is to determine if you, the author, and the characters all want to fuck your mom. Literally, it's uh, pro- proponents include Sigmund Freud, Jacques Lacan, who the name sounded kind of familiar, but I couldn't put like anything to it. Mirror stage. Ah, yeah, it just was, quote, the most controversial psychoanalyst since Freud. And we all know that Freud is full of shit, so presumably this guy is also full well, of the, shit. Well, yeah, that depends, because <laughs> I believe he also talks about, like, the people, um, anal retentive. <laughs> so, I mean, if you keep it in, you are full of shit. <laughs> but that's his whole thing, I'm pretty sure that's him. Where... Okay, so we got dick stuff, we got butt stuff. Yeah. And then you know who the third name on here? Harold Bloom! So it's a bunch of, it's a, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of nonsense. We have queer theory, which, of course, examines questions and criticizes the role of gender identity, sexuality, and literature. Big proponents being Judith Butler and Michelle Foucault, which, uh, for me, was always great in grad school as as an enterprising young queer myself. If you aren't sure what to say about this particular reading, figure out how gay it is. Because it's always at least a little bit gay. Or it wouldn't be literature. There's reader response criticism. Richard Rorty. What? Richard Rorty. They didn't list him. Ugh. I mean, it could be. Who do they got? They, they have Louise Rosenblatt, Wolfgang Eiser, Norman Holland, Hans Robert, Jocelyn Stewart Hall. So they listed a bunch of people and they didn't list your boy. Uh, there you go. Yeah. Focus upon the active response of the reader to a text. Are you actually paying attention to what the fuck you're reading? <laughs> Maybe. Realist. They just had one lonely guy on there named James Wood. And I was so curious because there's just... Like, that was the only one where they were like, oh, let's put one dude that I actually looked up who he was. Hey, he was just one guy working for a brief period in the uh, the early to mid-90s who had very uh, aggressive opinions that was essentially fuck postmodernism. He coined a term called hysterical realism uh, and, and just the, the realism of the absurd. And yeah, disavowed postmodernism said, This house, we only respect the realistic elements of the everyday, and all we care about is Flaubert and Graham Greene. Like, the criticism on him was like, Well, James Wood, he had some opinions, didn't he? (laughs) I forgot how weird English academia is. Like, deep academia? It's weird. (laughs) Like, real academia. (laughs) And then finally, structuralism and semiotics which examines the universal underlying structures in a text and how the author conveys meaning through structures, which is also sort of confusing. And that also includes Roland Barthes and Northrop Fry and Umberto Eco. And that's kind of confusing, unless you kind of know who Umberto Eco is as a writer, because he's written whole novels that are all about, like, hey... Look at all of these signs and symbols. Maybe they link up to mean something different. Oh no, they don't. Happens. I, I had to read a lot of Echo in undergrad also. So it kind of makes sense that that's his thing. And the only reason I know the name Northrop Fry is because he got real big writing about the poet William Blake, who was a crazy man who recited Shakespeare naked in his backyard. And... He's referenced a lot in the graphic novel Watchmen, which was written by another crazy man who lives in a cave in England. No, he lives in the swamp. (laughs) No, he wrote about Swamp Thing. 
It's different. And his favorite TV shows, Watchmen Babies. <laughs> Northrop Fry was also the protege of Harold Bloom, but I don't have time for that right now. And there you go. Actually, you know what? That list didn't really have anything about Baudrillard, the other French guy that I'm pretty okay with. But I guess he kind of falls in that same group as Umberto Eco and them. And there you go! Literary theory! Kind of. Hey everybody, it's Megan. So I know we sort of busted out a weird one on you this time around, but uh, I hope you're kind of enjoying it. it it's gonna get weirder from here. Um, <laughs> a, l- a little less silly, RJ is going to magically become competent. And I know right now you're gonna be like, what? But yes, let's just wait and see as it happens before your very eyes. Your ears. Y- you know what I mean. But before we get to that point, I just want to take this time in the episode to thank our wonderful, beautiful, amazing, absolutely non-theoretically and completely practically awesome patrons without whom our episodes would not be possible. They, they just wouldn't. They would disappear like a, a puff of smoke. They'd gone. Including our newest patrons, Chad and Tarragon. Thank you guys so much. You fucking rock. If you too want to fucking rock, then you can head over to patreon.com slash onolitclass where you can pledge and get such awesome things as access to bonus content. You get shout out on the show. You get stickers and bookmarks, t-shirts. You can vote on what episodes we do next. Or if you pledge the amount that Tarragon pledged, you get to briefly become the boss of us and just tell us what to do next you get to say this is the book you're doing and we get to we go yeah okay so that's a thing you could do and we look forward to whatever tarragon is going to tell us to do i'm frightened but excited no nope that came out gross and scary i'm sorry i regret that so you know what we're just gonna we're gonna slide right back into the rest of the episode Probably sorry, too. Hey, RJ, you want to talk about Walter Benjamin? Yes, first of all, so it's Walter Benjamin, not Benjamin. I've... It's spelled Walter Benjamin. It's probably Walter. It is probably Walter Benjamin. In particular, Walter Bendix Schonfuis Benjamin. Oh, that's a battle we were never going to win. Born July 15th, 1892. Died September 26th, 1940. I'm not going to give a whole rundown here of his life. Just going to hit some of the main bullet points that I wrote 13 years ago. (laughs) Also because his life is very sad. Oh, that made one of the bullet points. (laughs) Can't leave you off of that. If you look at the dates and you learn that he was German and Jewish, you can put it together yourself. So he considered himself a homme de lettres. Or a man of letters. Yeah. Yeah. He also considered himself a literary critic rather than a philosopher. He was also really into Jewish mysticism. That's fun. Like the the Kabbalah or whatever? Yeah, like Madonna. Yeah. (laughs) Madonna, Walter Benjamin, contemporaries. Yeah. Artist (laughs) in their own way. He earned a doctorate in Switzerland in 1919. He made a living as a literary critic, a translator, and a freelance writer. In 1933, he fled from 
Nazi Germany to Paris, France, which was an okay move at first until France was occupied by the Germans later on. And when that happened, he committed suicide because he did not have a visa to get out of France. The end. So Yeah, th- yeah that's fucking awful. So a couple things here. Because of his fragmented and secretive short life, a lot of his works were left behind in pieces or just altogether lost. And so scholars and translators have had to piece it together over time and argue what actually goes with what. Most of his works were published posthumously with the help of Theodore Adorno. Who was another Marxist literary theorist. I believe also Jewish. Okay. A lot of them were. I was going to say probably a lot of them were. Adorno, another one that I like. He wrote The Dialectic of Enlightenment, which I believe you read part of, Megan. Maybe. I think I told you to. You might have. Whether or not I did it is anyone's he, guess. He wrote it with uh, Max Horkheimer. So a lot of times you hear the two of them talked about together as Adorno and Horkheimer. Oh, was Horkheimer the film one? They're all kind of the film one. Oh, that's what I... means kind of the film one. The other two are also kind of the film one because oh, that's they all why work I, together. Well, that's why I like them because I don't know why. Talking about movies is somehow... It's just easier to digest. <laughs> I mean, the dialectic of Enlightenment's a long book. I am fairly confident they do talk about film somewhere in there. I mean, the thing is, so Adorno influenced Benjamin, who influenced Adorno, but definitely influenced Horkheimer, who wrote with Adorno, but kind of like after Benjamin. Ow. Yeah. So they all kind of wrote about the same stuff. Anyway, the work we're specifically going to talk about is the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction... However, it might be better titled The Work of Art in the Age of Its Technological Reproducibility. Yeah, because mechanical reproduction... uh, In fact, if I remember specifically, when I brought it up in Treasure Island, your joke was, oh, robots fucking then. Yeah. (laughs) That's how mechanicals reproduce. So I don't know if you want to talk about this first or how we're doing this here. I mean, you've kind of got your notes there. I'll... I'll chime in. If you want to hear my version of it, you can go back and listen to our Treasure Island episode because the way I discussed it was in terms of pirates and copies of copies and John Silver. And and also I mentioned a lot of the French philosopher Baudrillard until I make a delicious Benjamin and Baudrillard smoothie about pirates. Um, But I'll let you kind of take the lead here. So specifically Benjamin was writing at the start of the 20th century, which, hey... Big technological advances were underway. In particular, he talks about how things that were not easily reproduced prior to the 20th century were now very easy to reproduce in the 20th century. To give an example, let's say I am able to copy the Mona Lisa, right? I can take maybe a picture with a high-def camera and I can print it out, same size, same everything. I can make it look pretty much the same and I can hang it in a museum in the U.S., and say, hey, come see the Mona Lisa. It looks exactly like the one in the Louvre. <laughs> the Louvre. And maybe some people would like kind of come see it. Just be like, oh, yeah, there it is. Kind of looks like the other one. That sure um, is a high-def Mona Lisa. But for the most part, most people would still consider the one in the Louvre to be like the Mona Lisa. Even if the pictures are exactly the same. That even if Anwasha could chemically test the paper, you might not be able to really tell them apart. Because visually, it's the same thing. And what Benjamin argues is that, well, art, absence its context, you lose what he refers to as its aura. That every piece of art, that, that you can't replicate its place in space and in time. That it exists. And the Mona Lisa has been owned by a certain number of people. 
who have physically impacted the picture over a certain amount of years, right? There might be a fold or a crease or they wrote in the margins where you really can't see it when it's rained, but that's happened, right? And maybe you can make it reproduction of it look a lot the same, but it's still not the thing. You know, a different idea is the way that you could walk into any museum nowadays and you see these great marble statues. What it means for us nowadays is a lot different than what it maybe meant thousands of years ago because we've taken it out of its aura. We've taken it out of its shell. We've taken it away from its context. Right now, it's just in a museum with 30 other the same exact things. And you know, maybe you could read the little note card that they put on the wall next to it to try to get some of that context back. But it's really never going to work because now it's in a nice air-conditioned museum and not in the Great Pyramids or something like that. In another way of speaking, you're not seeing the thing in its natural habitat, so to speak. In short, art has become a consumable. Yeah. Well, that's there's, that's where you get to the Marxist heart of it. That's where you get to the capitalism. I mean, so a couple other things. Before the 20th century, not everyone read, right? Literacy really got a lot better across the world in the 20th century. Going a little bit further back in time, before the mechanical press, which is reproduction, yeah. right? you had people who had to handwrite every book that the few thousand people in a country that were able to read read, right? And so once you were able to reproduce literature, for example, there was a real life impact to that. More people than could read because now there's a glut in the market of literature, right? And so part of what he's focused on is how does the production of art you know, impact society? That on the one hand, it can be reproduction, but it's also becomes an art of itself, right? That when people began producing you know, text, even though the literature wasn't new, the way it was being presented was new. And the way that it functioned in the market was new. And so it changed the market. It changed the people. And so the biggest change in the 20th century, which he was really interested in, was film. Megan's favorite. That before film, it was stage plays. And the stage, he argues, has an aura to it. That there's you in the theater. There's the actor in the theater. The actor can respond to you and the crowd, right? If the crowd starts booing, they can do something different. Right. And you can choose how you respond to the actor, right? That there is that back and forth and it happens on the stage. And we all know it's kind of a production because we're there, but we get the moment and we all kind of make believe, right? That there's a lot going on into it. Well, what film does is the audience is no longer an audience member. Really what the audience replaces is the camera. And a lot of the art happens outside of the audience's view. It happens outside of the camera's view, right? A camera just captures a bunch of pictures that then in the editing room are stitched together in a certain way that's supposed to give a certain story, but that wasn't necessarily how the camera caught it, right? That the real art is no longer in front of us. The real art is behind the scenes that we don't get. And so now there's this kind of separation. Whereas if you're looking at a painting, Benjamin argues you get lost in that art, right? That you're trying to figure out what was it that the painter was trying to do. Whereas when you take in a movie, you're much more passive. You're not really focusing on any individual slide. And so it becomes much more of a consumer good. You see, what I thought was interesting is because I like Benjamin because I like how he talks about things and I find it much less pretentious than a lot of things. And it's kind of easier to take in. And I used his argument as one would kind of do in literature, how you're saying. And I see how it's a Marxist argument in terms of turning things into consumables and in that way. But it's interesting how it for how it's supposed to be a Marxist reading and Marxist arguments because it's almost like he's advocating for some bourgeois shit. What do you mean? 
um, oh, well, if you go see a play, like, that's the real experience, you know, a movie, that's a consumable, even though, or, like, you know, the, the printing press and, like, making text widely available, now it's a consumable, even though both of those things are creating something that is more widely available and is going to get to more people and is creating something that can be more widely experienced, whereas a play is something that is only going to be available on a much more select level. Well, I think where he comes from, and then Benjamin, because of when he wrote, so the early 20th century, he wound up influencing a lot of later writers. And if we ever talk about Adorno and Horkheimer, or even Barthes, you'll definitely start picking up the threads in the arguments. I, I think the response to you would be, but you have to pay attention to who then is in charge of the publishing houses. Mm. who's in charge of the production companies at the time, right? It was a lot of state media. True. Right? And so what he's thinking propaganda. of are propaganda, propaganda pamphlets or propaganda films, right? And you know, that these works are being able, that you're able to present these works as something natural, but it's anything but. You just don't see it. You don't see what's happening. Like you said, all the stuff that's happening off camera that you can't trust your eyes because it's not happening in front of you. What I like, he he compares uh, surgeons to magicians in a way that he says painters and film editors are basically doing the same thing. That a painter is doing it all in front of you. You see the easel, you see the work of art, right? Kind of, in a way, maybe like a surgeon, that a surgeon digs into you physically. Right. Right. Where if you go to a magician or I guess like a holistic healer, they lay their hands on you. They look you in the eye. <laughs> and, oh, I'm really doing something, but they're not doing anything. It's very superficial on what you're actually taking away from it, you know, which is kind of like a film because you're just replacing the camera. You're not replacing anything else. You're not seeing everything that's happening. This is weird thinking about this when we watched The Prestige like last night. <laughs> True. Um... You know, the other big thing to keep in mind, I guess, kind of hiding in the background of this, which I think makes Benjamin more and more relevant as we press on and as technology changes, is that he gets very focused on the potential for the democratization of being able to publish to get your word out there. But he's concerned, on the other hand, where then there's this blurring of the lines, that there used to be a very clear line between author, public, and critic, right? The author got the work published. Right, that's the book. The public was the one who bought it. They enjoyed it. You knew if they liked it or not by how many they bought. And the critic, well, they're in the newspapers talking about the thing that everyone's reading, right? And Adorno and Horkheimer pick up on more like ham radio that people just started talking to each other. Like anyone can get a license, right? Right. Um, but thinking of it more relevant now, but even then when it became a lot cheaper to print newspapers, everyone had a damn newspaper. Anyone can get their word out there. But now in the 21st century, hey, what's the difference between the thing, the public, and the critic, right? Everyone just hops on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever, and it kind of just overlaps where now is the criticism really the art? Whereas before it was clearly a distinction, but now it seems like criticism is maybe the art form sometimes, and it's hard to tell where those lines are. I mean, there's people who've literally make their living off of that on YouTube. Yes. <laughs> We I'm, watch, I'm, we thinking more, say, I'm thinking we more. Watched, we watch the videos. <laughs> I'm thinking more even just Twitter, like Sarah Cooper, who's now going to have a Netflix special. You know who this is? Yes, I do know who that okay. is. I know things. I don't know, Meg. You're not down with the youths. You know, and so it's interesting to see how the essay holds up and maybe becomes more relevant over time as a lot of what I think we consider like 21st century media is consumable. 
right? That it it's made to be consumed. Also, if these guys saw a deep fake, they'd shit themselves. This is true too, right? Like, how can we tell the aura anymore? Photoshop is going to tell us if you get Photoshop, if a photo has been edited or not based on their algorithm. And so on the one hand, I think you're right that if you do like a facial reading of it, you would think, oh, well, well, this is great. Like Marxists will love this because it's a democratization. (laughs) It gives the power to people. But there is like that, well, you know, who's controlling it still? Who has the power to be able to do this? You know, who has the ability to make deep fakes, right? You and I can't. Well. We could be fooled. If we knew how to, we could. <laughs> and then theory. even if we, right? And even if we did, can we really control it, right? We could try to put it out there, try to get you know, X amount of hits. <laughs> yeah. You know, but YouTube could decide maybe to take it down. Yeah. Right? And so all those themes kind of start falling on top of each other. But I really do think if you explore the critics, which we'll probably do in future episodes, you'll kind of see where these threads start getting picked up. And you know, homes, as we move through the 20th century, move into the 21st century. Or we'll talk about fucking formalism. <laughs> See, my favorite is Megan's alluded to is Roland Barthes talking about wrestling because wrestling, I think, is great. Oh, hell yeah. Roland Barthes rules. His fucking writings on wrestling rule because because he talks about how they're signifiers for like the hero's journey in like contemporary mythology and it fucking rocks. <laughs> that shit I can get behind. Yeah. But yeah. then it becomes all about blurring the lines. But then even when you point that out to people in the 21st century, they still want to cling, man. There must be capital T truth out there somewhere. There must be. Well, and then you, well, then, but see, but that's the thing. You can't, you get like this thing at like both ends of the spectrum. Because that's why then you get your boy, Harold Bloom, at the other end, being like, why you want to get a feminist reading of uh, fucking Hamlet? I don't know why Hamlet is the one he's fixating on. What's that going to tell us about Hamlet? It's not going to tell us anything new about Hamlet. It's just going to tell us about you. And it's like, no, if we focus on the character of Ophelia and the different ways that she gets like fucked over in the text and things like that, that can teach us things. You wrinkled old fuck. It could teach us things, but even those things are not capital T truth. So what do you... Cons- okay, so you, what, what do you mean when you say there is no capital T truth? Well, we can talk about that when we get to Derrida, I suppose. I suppose so. But I'm going to make so many weird furry jokes to make up for it. I swear to God. But in short, there is no objective truth. Well, okay. Hamlet is about a guy named Hamlet whose dad is dead. Is it? Yes. I don't know. Do you believe the narrator? There isn't a narrator. Oh, there's someone telling you the tale. That that one doesn't have like a narrator who goes in and out. We covered this. You got to believe the characters. Well, why wouldn't I? It's a story. Sometimes characters lie. Yeah, but this one isn't told in like a a first or second person. It's a play. Sometimes characters lie. This isn't like a... You have to take a leap. Now, generally, we are okay with that, and like in wrestling, we'll accept the truth within that context, even though in reality we know what might really be going on, but that's not objectively true. Is it objectively true that you are 35 years old? I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) What the fuck does that mean? (laughs) I assume so, but I don't know. Am I my parents' son? I mean, I assume so, but I could have got switched around. I mean, but you look like them. 
Okay. You, you have a family resemblance. It'd I be suppose. Ca- it'd be kind of fucking weird if you weren't. It might be weird. My best guess is yes. You, you, you look you look like your relatives. My best guess is yes. Well, okay, but what if you got a DNA test and it confirmed it? No, there's still that 0.01% chance. That's pretty weak. It's weak, but it's not 100%. It's not certain. You're reaching. No. You're reaching. No. If you look like them. Okay. And you got a DNA test that says so. Yeah. That to, for all intents and purposes, it's true. But not capital T true. This is why no one likes philosophy. <laughs> because it's dumb and it sucks. It's it's okay that we accept <laughs> truths. Well, we're case T all the time. And this is why a comedy show about philosophy would suck. Okay. <laughs> There you go. This this would be oh my fucking god philosophy class. You say there is no truth and me getting increasingly frustrated with you. And on that note then, that will do it for this week's episode of oh my fucking god philosophy class slash oh no lit class. We're sorry that this week's episode was kind of a short one, but we hope you enjoyed it. It was something different, something new, and with, with any luck, something that we'll continue to, to do every now and then bring you a literary theorist and help demystify just what the fuck literary theory is exactly and maybe by the end of it i will know exactly what literary theory is but until then if you like what you hear you can leave us a rating leave us a review tell your family tell your friends Tell your formalist Marxist, new criticist, pragmatist, prescriptivist, psychoanalytic, new structuralist theorist. Tell that bald spot on LeBron's head. Someone's already pulled up basketball. (laughs) Tell that bald spot on LeBron's head. Be like, hey, hey, LeBron's bald spot. Go listen to Owen on the class. Don't leave the bubble. Don't you leave that fucking bubble. But since you're not, you can listen to podcasts. That's something you can do since you're stuck in that basketball bubble in Orlando. And uh, you can go to onolitclass.com to check out all the places that you can follow us on social media or to the store where you can get awesome merch or you can support us at Patreon. Links to all of those things and more at onolitclass.com. Our next episode will be on September 3rd. Until then, I'm Megan. Is Webster an animal farm? Who's Webster? The spider. What? Charlotte? Yeah. Webster. Oh, wait. So, wait. Is Webster the pig in Charlotte's Web? Wilbur. Now, I'm pretty sure Wilbur's the horse. Wilbur's the pig. Are you really going to check? The pig is Wilbur. Yes. This is what I want. Wilbur, huh? Told you. (laughs) All right. Yeah. I'm hungry. He's RJ. We love you. Bye. Did you know Andre 3000 was in this movie? No, I did not. He plays Elwin the Crow. Elwin the Crow. Robert Redford's Ike the Horse. I'm, I'm hitting it. Stop. No, there's no objectable truth. Objectable? Not, not well, what's the word? Objective. There is no objective truth. What, what, what does objectable mean? I have no idea. <laughs> I was pretty close. Look. Language is a living, breathing thing. It's changing all the time. And one day, objectable might mean something. It might. (laughs)